Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Giancarlo, what do we have on tap for today? Well, the court did not hear oral arguments this week and isn't scheduled to do so again until Monday, November 2nd, but we still got some exciting and controversial news from the court. We have, in addition to confirmation hearing updates, some grants, and of course, our favorite game, what will the Chief Justice do with his swing vote this week? This is so exciting. Let's do this. Okay, first, confirmation hearings. GC, give us some ACB updates, please. My pleasure. On Thursday, the committee voted 12 to 0 with all the Democrats boycotting to refer Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the full Senate. The vote before the full Senate is scheduled for Monday, October 26. I'm very much excited for this, so thank you for that update, Giancarlo. Moving on, this past week, the court granted certiorari in four cases, one on Friday and three on Monday. Late last Friday, the court agreed to hear the Trump administration's expedited appeal in Trump v. New York, which involves the 2020 census and apportionment. In a July memorandum, President Trump directed Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross to exclude illegal aliens from inclusion in the apportionment base, or in other words, to not count them as part of a state's population for purposes of apportioning electoral votes or seats in the House of Representatives. Several state and local governments, as well as immigrants' rights groups, filed suit in federal court. On September 10th, a three-judge district court issued an order blocking the Trump administration from implementing the memorandum. The justices will hear oral arguments in this case on November 30th. The court also took up a challenge to President Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, which required asylum seekers at the border to remain in Mexico pending resolution of their claim. The case is Wolf versus Innovation Law Lab, and the Ninth Circuit upheld a preliminary injunction against the policy. The Supreme Court took up not only the question about the legality of the policy, but also granted certiorari on the question of whether the preliminary injunction, which was a universal or nationwide, injunction was overbroad. GC, are you telling me we might get a ruling on nationwide injunctions from the Supreme Court? Well, we might, but it's actually hard to get to that question because if the Supreme Court reverses on the merits, it probably isn't going to get to the remedy. (sighs) Why do you crush my hopes and dreams like this? (laughs) Moving on, the court also granted certiorari in Trump v. Sierra Club, This case involves challenges to the federal government's plan to redirect approximately $2.5 billion toward counter-narcotics funding, which would then be used in border wall construction. The petitioners in this case argue that the administration does not have authority to redirect funds in this way. Congress allocated X number of dollars for border security, and the executive branch can't use slush fund-style workarounds to allocate itself more money for things like border security in this way. And last up, the Supreme Court granted cert in Lange versus California, a Fourth Amendment case that will clarify when police may enter a house without a warrant. 
Usually that's not allowed, but there are some exceptions for exigencies, such as when the police are in hot pursuit. In this case, a police officer stuck his foot in Mr. Lange's garage to stop the garage door from closing after having observed him committing misdemeanor traffic violations. So the question is whether a misdemeanor qualifies as an exigent circumstance that an officer may enter a house without a warrant. In other news, Amy, what happened in this week's edition of what will the chief justice do with his swing vote? Well, the chief once again proved that he remains an enigma to me. That's what happened, John Carlo. Okay, please explain. So on Tuesday, the chief sided with the liberal bloc to deny emergency review of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's mandated change to that state's mail-in ballot laws. So Pennsylvania law, as written, clearly says that mail-in ballots not received by 8 p.m. on Election Day are not to be counted. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court effectively rewrote that law, ordering that election officials count all mail-in ballots received by 8 p.m. on the Friday after Election Day, unless those ballots uh, were clearly mailed at some point after Election Day on Tuesday. The four other conservatives on the court would have granted review. But then on Wednesday, the chief sided with the conservative wing to stay a federal district court order that would have permitted Alabama counties to use curbside voting methods if they wanted to. Alabama law neither requires nor prohibits such curbside voting, but earlier this year, the Alabama Secretary of State banned counties from implementing it nonetheless. The district court found, among other things, that this violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justices Kagan and Breyer, dissented from that grant of stay. Well, that's it for court activity this week. Amy, who do we have joining the show for an interview? John Carlo, I sat down with Professor Hannah Brenner-Johnson and Professor Renee Naik-Jefferson to discuss their recent book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. Professor Johnson is Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs and Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. And Professor Jefferson holds the Joan and Larry Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics and is a professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. Professor Johnson, Professor Jefferson, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having us. So I'm, I'm really, really excited to have you both on to talk about this book because I think it's a great look at a part of American legal history that, frankly, I wasn't even aware existed, much less was so completely overlooked. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. What's the story behind this book? What got you writing it? What got you interested in it? Uh, and really, what did you set out to accomplish with it? Well, I can tell you that the book was born um, over a decade ago. And so in order to tell you the story of how it came to be and how we even learned about these extraordinary women who were shortlisted but never selected, um, because like you, um, they were not known to us, um, it requires us to go back in time about a decade. Renee and I were new colleagues. Uh, we were law professors at Michigan State University College of Law. And our friendship and our professional relationship really was born um, in between the bookends book of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan's nominations and confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
it was during both of these women's um, experiences being shortlisted and then selected and ultimately confirmed um, that we that we developed a project that ultimately was the place that we found um, we found the, the hook for for this for writing this book. Um, we were struck. Uh, as we were, you know, learning about these extraordinary women who were considered for the court, um, at how the media was portraying them, they were focused on their qualifications. Of course, they were both very accomplished uh, attorneys, uh, but they were also being scrutinized for things that, in in our perspective, really didn't matter. So, um, both Sotomayor and Kagan were being uh, critiqued by the media because they didn't have children. Um, they were both single women. Um, you know, some inter some reporters queried who would accompany them to, you know, the the dinners that they would inevitably be invited to if they made it onto the court. Uh, and they were also critiqued based on what they were wearing. Um, and so, you know, Renee and I, as academics, uh, had a lot of privilege and power, and decided that rather than just complain about these anecdotal observations. We decided to study the issue more seriously, and so we embarked on an empirical research project, a content analysis of media coverage of nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court dating back to the early 1970s. There had only been um, four women at that point um, who had been nominated uh, and ultimately confirmed. And so we didn't think we could just study the women's experience because, well, frankly, there weren't that many. Um, and so we looked at all nominees to the court. Um, gender, of course, is something that um, isn't just relegated to, uh, to, to women um, or to the female sex. And so we looked at how the media portrayed all nominees dating back to the 70s through this gendered lens. Um, so our media study resulted in a collection of about 4,000 newspaper articles published in the Washington Post and the New York Times. This collection of articles was read by us and a team of research assistants. And it was in this collection that we actually discovered an article that really sets the stage for the writing of the shortlisted book. We discovered an article about a woman named Mildred Lilly she was a judge from California who appeared on President Nixon's shortlist in the 1970s. And I'll let Renee talk about what this article um, revealed to us and how it inspired us to write this book. So the article actually had six names uh, that and it had been Nixon's a shortlist. He um, allowed for it to be leaked to the media. Really the first president to use the, the shortlist in this sort of way. There were two women's names, uh, and of course, one of them was, was Mildred Lilly. Sylvia Bacon was the other. She was a judge in uh, Washington, D.C. And among the qualifications listed for Mildred Lilly in this New York Times article was that she uh, had no children and had maintained her bathing beauty figure even in her 50s. So this, of course, fit into the thesis of our media study, but that's not really why the article was so interesting to us. We were like, who's Mildred Lilly and who's Sylvia Bacon? <laughs> Why haven't we ever heard of these women? There were two women shortlisted for the Supreme Court before O'Connor. Why didn't either of them end up on the court? And how many other women were considered by presidents before them? And that led us to several years of research. I've traveled across, across the country digging through presidential archives uh, and in order to answer that question. And, and of course, as I said earlier, we discovered the answer is nine women um, and we discovered a lot more as we learned about them. 
So let's talk about these women. So, as you said, uh, the book goes over nine of them that you were able to find. Uh, can you give us perhaps just a brief introduction to some of them? Who are these women? So absolutely. And each of them, um, I think Renee and I both um, you know, relate to in different ways. I think we think of all of them in some, some fashion to be kindred spirits of sorts. You know, I think each of us have, uh, you know, a couple of favorites or certainly favorite stories. Um, perhaps the most logical place to begin is with the first. Um, who was the first woman to be shortlisted to the U.S. Supreme Court? And I think your listeners might be surprised to learn that the first woman to be considered for the Supreme Court um, was a woman in the 1930s, um, a judge from Ohio named Florence Allen. Um, she was the first woman uh, to be uh, put onto a federal appellate court, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. She was an incredible trailblazer. Um, uh, if you can imagine, many doors to law, to many doors to law schools and law firms, in fact, were closed to women in the 1930s. But in fact, Florence Allen was considered by three presidents, Hoover, Roosevelt, and Truman, um, as they contemplated uh, how to fill vacancies on the U.S. Supreme Court. And so the story really begins with Florence Allen's consideration in the 1930s. Well, who came the closest? And so I'll mention two that came the closest to actually ending up on the Supreme Court. Because as I as I said in, in my earlier comments, some presidents shortlisted women, but never intended to actually pull them off the shortlist. I mean, Nixon was the worst offender when he put Sylvia Bacon and Mildred Lilly on his shortlist privately. I've listened to his Oval Office tapes and he was saying things like, I don't even think women should be allowed to vote, but he wanted their votes. And that's why he he shortlisted those women. Uh, but the, the woman who came the closest to coming off the shortlist of besides O'Connor, of course, um, is a woman named Cornelia Kennedy. Uh, she was a judge from Michigan. She would eventually go on to the Sixth Circuit and take that seat that Florence Allen held. When Florence Allen arrived on the Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, by the way, the newspaper accounts said things like um, that her male colleagues, some of them fell ill and ha had to take to bed over the thought of presiding over cases with, with a woman. There was not a bathroom facility available to her. She was excluded from the all-male dining club that her male colleagues would go to. She dined alone in her chambers her entire career on the Sixth Circuit. And in fact, uh, she gave her hot plate to Cornelia Kennedy when Cornelia Kennedy went on to the court. Uh, Cornelia Kennedy was eventually able to persuade her male colleagues that they should not frequent the all-male dining club unless she could be permitted to join them. And so she was able to remove that structural barrier too. Um, one of the themes that comes out of the book is being very mindful as women literally remove physical barriers to their ability to thrive in the professional setting. For example, Florence Allen obtaining a, appropriate restroom facilities. There remained, and there still remain today, these barriers that, that may be more subtle. For example, exclusion from a networking opportunity like that lunch. The other woman who came very close, and so we've been talking about the nine, but our book also goes into women who were shortlisted by President Reagan after O'Connor. I think it's important to note that Reagan campaigned on the, the promise to put a woman on the Supreme Court, and he did it. But after that, he had lots of opportunities to put women on, on federal courts, including additional Supreme Court vacancies. And he had a great shortlist of qualified women, but he did not put another woman on the Supreme Court. And in fact, 
his record for putting women anywhere in the federal judiciary on the district courts or the courts of appeals was so abysmal that there was actually a congressional hearing and inquiry into it. And so he, he very much sort of checked checked the box on that. But one woman he did shortlist for a subsequent vacancy also came very close to coming off the shortlist, and that's Edith Jones. Judge Jones was not only considered by Reagan, uh, but also later by uh, President Bush, for the first President Bush. And in his archives, I've, I've actually held what I think must have been the speech that he was about to read for her nomination. It's on very fancy paper, uh, several pages announcing her nomination, but of course it, it would never be. The number of the women in the book were actually very big activists in the suffrage movement. In fact, Florence Allen herself campaigned for women getting the right to vote. And in fact, some of her earlier uh, judicial work, she benefited from the women's vote. Also, a lot of the women, um, I mean, they were con- they were complex and they were contradictory um, in many regards. So um, although a woman like Florence Allen or Susie Sharp um, believed that women should have the right to vote, or at least white women should, um, they didn't necessarily believe in the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and in fact, um, you know, several of the women campaigned um, against that vehemently. So um, just interesting to note the 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 dichotomy even within some of them as it relates to some of these issues. And I'll just jump in so that your listeners know who Susie Sharp is. So she was the first female justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court and the first elected female chief justice of any state Supreme Court uh, shortlisted by Reagan. Um, And yeah, she was uh, definitely among the most complex of the women in our study an avowed racist uh, campaigned against, or at least lobbied against, the Equal Rights Amendment. And yet, in her judicial decision making, she set her personal views aside. So she was the judge who authored an opinion to desegregate golf courses in North Carolina, the first to do so in that state. And so, even though she had personal viewpoints that, well, we 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 find offensive. Uh, we appreciate that she was able to set aside her personal views and exercise her duties and obligation as a judge and a justice to apply the law. Even though you know, all of these women, as you've talked about, have incredibly unique stories in their own right, did you find any common themes, struggles, or or impediments that these women, even if not faced necessarily collectively at the same time, but that they faced commonly over the course of the last couple of decades, what are these common themes? What are these common struggles? Well, it's it's true to say that all of the women experienced bias and discrimination. For some of them, it was explicit. Um, recall, I recall that Judge Kearse, when she um, went to Wall Street to look for a job, she was interviewed um, by a law firm and um, the lawyer who she met with uh, said, you know, your resume is incredible um, and I'd hire you if only you were a man. So sometimes the, the discrimination was, you know, truly a closed door um, based on the fact that they were women. Um, for others, the, the bias or the discrimination was less explicit. And I think as we, um, as we move forward in time, um, we definitely saw a shift away from that explicit, those explicit closed doors and moved instead to, uh, I think, a time where we are right now, which is the, the bias and the discrimination is much more difficult to see um, and to touch. Um, 
you know, there, there are just, there's, there's so many examples, uh, too many to list, um, but, but suffice it to say that each of these women experienced in their own unique ways um, closed doors uh, as they made their way. That said, all of them were incredibly persistent. Um, they did not take a no or uh, that closed door uh, and decide not to move forward. Um, and although none of the women, none of the nine shortlisted women made it on to the United States Supreme Court, they all were incredibly successful. Many of them went from shortlisted to selected in the different spaces in their lives. Um, certainly for a woman to serve on a federal appellate court in the 1930s um, was groundbreaking um, you know, in its own right, even if ultimately she didn't make it onto the U.S. Supreme Court. Another challenge that they all faced, although some of them differently, was motherhood and raising children. And some of them chose not to be mothers. Susie Sharp was the most vocal about it. She would actually advise women and said publicly, you can either choose a professional life or you can choose to have children, but you can't, you cannot do both. And uh, some of the women weren't so vocal, um, but Florence Allen never had children. And Soya Menchikoff, who we haven't been, who we have not discussed yet, she was shortlisted by LBJ, the first female law professor at Harvard and uh, also at the University of Chicago. She never had children. Several of the women did have children. Uh, Carla Hills, who was shortlisted by President Ford, uh, she was his secretary of housing and urban development and was quite famously photographed uh, often, even at her swearing in, holding one of uh, the hand of, of, of one of her young children. But what I will say is reading their oral histories for the women who had children, more than one of them, when asked what was the greatest challenge or difficulty you faced, it was trying to figure out how they were going to handle childcare. And each woman navigated it differently. But I think especially now that's something that probably resonates with a lot of your listeners in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, the childcare issues are just exponentially more difficult for, for everyone. And that's something that we socially as a society haven't addressed as, as a structural reform or a structural change. But I think that's something that all of the shortlisted sisters would have been able to agree on as one that we need. Professors, you actually do more in this book than present a list of, of just the obstacles that women attorneys and, and judges have to overcome. And, and so I'm glad you you brought up sort of what problems are, are still left because you actually present a list of strategies in the book for overcoming some of these obstacles based on your research. We do present a number of strategies in the book for surmounting the shortlist, and we do so with a bit of hesitation, um, in part because the fix is not easy. We also resist the temptation that I think a lot of people put forth to, to put it on the women to, you know, take a, um, to find a mentor um, or, you know, read another book about how to be successful and how to address these barriers and obstacles. And the focus of many of our strategies um, is systemic. We really advocate for structural changes. So not just quick fixes that any one person can engage in, but things that we all have to collectively um, adhere to. And, you know, we did end the book with the series of strategies in large part because we learned a lot from these women's lives. We learned a lot from them individually, and we learned a lot from them collectively. Um, I, you know, one of the, one of the strategies that we talk about is, 
the importance of women collaborating with one another to be competitive. And I think of um, a favorite example uh, that uh, involves one of the shortlisted women, Judge Klein, who is a, a judge from California. She was, she took very seriously this notion of mentoring and providing opportunities for other women um, to such an extent that she actually was responsible for um, both founding and co-founding two major organizations that we now just sort of take for granted, the National Association of Women Judges and California Women Lawyers. And if you might imagine, there was a time when these affinity groups um, did not exist for women. And she, um, through her efforts, was able to, to create them uh, and provide opportunity for women to network and connect with each other. Um, but she also did something that I think of as quite remarkable. She was shortlisted um, by President Reagan, along with Justice O'Connor and another of other women. Um, obviously, she did not make it off the shortlist. She was not the nominee. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was. She was asked in her capacity as the president of the National Association of Women Judges to step in and testify on behalf of Sandra Day O'Connor in her Senate confirmation hearings. And she did so eloquently and beautifully and spoke very highly of Sandra Day O'Connor. I imagine that she must have felt some amount of disappointment in not being the one who was selected, but she put those personal feelings aside um, for the, the greater good um, of women making it, it onto the court. And I, I just have so much respect for her as just one example. And I'll, I'll share just a, a couple more. So to go back to the point about structural changes addressing childcare, Soya Menchikoff, who, as I said, did not have children herself. So in addition to being the first female law professor at Harvard and Chicago, and also the first permanent female dean at the University of Miami's law school, she was the first president of the Association of American Law Schools, which is a, a national organization. All law schools belong to it. And like many professional organizations, holds an annual conference. And at that conference, uh, there are lots of opportunities for networking, presenting one scholarship and getting feedback. There can be opportunities for new jobs and that sort of thing. And she she was not particularly thought of as a feminist. Uh, you've, you've probably figured that out by now as we've discussed the women. Some of them were more so than others. She was not. Uh, she didn't hold herself out that way. I mean, privately, she... Uh, did not really support the Equal Rights Amendment, but she noticed that women were not attending this annual meeting. And she asked why and learned it was because of the timing. It started the day after Christmas and went through the New Year's holiday. And what she was hearing is it was very difficult for women who were predominantly the caregivers of the young children in their homes to leave for a professional conference the day after Christmas. And so she, she changed the the time that the meeting happens. It now happens after the holidays. And I can tell you that many women have benefited from that professionally. In fact, Hannah and I, when we had young toddlers who are now teenagers, presented at one of those conferences and we actually won a writing competition award related to the early research that went into this book. And so that's the kind of change that may seem very simple, just changing a meeting time and yet can have profound consequences for the professional trajectory of whomever is responsible for caregiving in a household, which more often than not is women, but certainly it would benefit men equally to women. So that's one example. I, I want to shift gears a little bit to looking forward. 
Obviously, since this book has been published, there have been significant changes on the Supreme Court. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in many respects, the icon of women judges, has passed away. Now, putting aside the politics and political controversy surrounding the nomination of Justice Ginsburg's replacement, it is notable that the immediate and widespread consensus was not that the nominee should be a woman, but that it would be a woman. What does this mean for purposes of the shortlist? How should we understand this? Is this a good thing? Does it move the conversation forward? Uh, Ultimately, what do you make of this? Well, I think when we talk about Justice Ginsburg, um, I think immediately of her statement, um, which is now so widely known, you know, that she would be um, happy when we had nine women on the court. And I think that when I kind of unpack that sentiment, um, I think about the fact that in the history of our nation and the history of the U.S. Supreme Court, there have only been four women who have served. I mean, think about that for a moment. That's less than 4% of all Supreme Court justices. And so, you know, men have dominated that court for so long. And men of all political persuasions, all ideologies, different religious backgrounds, different life experiences, um, you know, some of them didn't even go to law school. And so I think that it's time that we really work to diversify the court. Um, Putting more women on the court, you know, it, it doesn't, whatever one's political persuasion or whatever one's ideology Um, is, you know, once we have uh, a critical mass of women who occupy that space, I think then we can kind of get into those details. But but women, you know, come from the same kinds of backgrounds and reflect so many different ideas and ideologies that it's just, I, I think that that sentiment of, you know, I'll be happy when there are nine is really reflective of the fact that we just haven't had we just haven't had women occupying that space. Um, and so, you know, the shortlist should be comprised of, um, of a range uh, of individuals who represent different ethnicities um, uh, and races, um, should, in my view, represent, um, you know, different gender identities, sexual orientation. It should ultimately be reflective um, of, of the public in which uh, the court ultimately serves. And I'll just add to that, because so I think another way to look at your question, and it was sort of implicit, I think, in your question is, are things better now? You know, the fact that it was just assumed it would be a woman, has that, does that mean that we've moved forward beyond this sort of political calculation of placing women on the short list or even selecting them for political purposes? And I think the answer to that, unfortunately, is no. I, I think that in selecting a woman to fill the seat left by Justice Ginsburg, that that was definitely a calculation made in the face of an election and thinking about the women who will be voting. And that's not dissimilar to the way Nixon was calculating when he created his shortlist. It's not dissimilar to Reagan running with the promise to put a woman on the court when he was competing against Carter's incredible record of diversifying the federal judiciary. Uh, And and to be sure, um, candidates and presidents from both parties 
have done this, right? Um, I mentioned earlier Biden's promise to put an African-American woman on the court. When Sandra Day O'Connor left the court, I, I think the nation all assumed that a woman would take her seat. And while Bush did initially appoint a woman, he nominated Harriet Myers, her nomination failed, which by the way, we go into the book uh, explaining that we think she was completely qualified for the court and that um, the media really did a, a huge disservice to her. She, her qualifications were very similar to uh, Lewis Powell. They were both presidents of bar associations. Powell was one of Nixon's appointments. Um, that's a bit of an aside. But then when she withdrew from her consideration, Bush did not put a woman on the court. And I, I think we all thought he was going to, uh, and it would have been been fitting. And um, my guess is his decision not to was also a political calculation. And so my hope is that the novelty of having women on the Supreme Court and in all areas of leadership and professional life become wears off so that it no longer is part of a political playbook, but instead is something that happens because they are, in fact, qualified and will do an excellent job. Well, Professor Jefferson, Professor Johnson, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. Uh, this is such a fascinating topic, and I'm, I'm so glad our, our listeners got to dive into this a, a little bit more. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Moving into trivia this week, I have crafted for you, Amy, a category I call famous failures. All right. I'm excited for this. I'm not oh. quite sure what you mean by that, but I'm. let's do it. So these are people who are not actually failures, far from it, in fact, but uh, for whatever reason, failed to become justices on the Supreme Court. Okay. Okay. All right. So first up for you, the descriptor, the smartest man or best judge to never serve on the Supreme Court has been given to several people over the years. If you can name one of them, you win and bonus points for each additional one you would can name. Okay. Uh, so I, I have some ideas for this. Uh, my first thought is if Judge Robert Bork is not on that list, he should be. Uh, so my, my first answer is going to be Robert Bork. That is correct. Okay. All right. So I've got one. Uh, do, do, how many were there? Did you just say several? Several. I have found okay. four. Okay. Uh, I would believe... Judge Richard Posner also has to be on that list. And again, that, if he is not, he should be. That is correct. Judge Bork and Judge Richard Posner were both on that list. Would you care to guess uh, any of the other two? You know what? I'm, I'm two for two, so I'm going to leave it at that. And <laughs> I'm going to stay perfect on this question. Okay. Well, the, as far as I could find out, the very first time that descriptor was used was in reference to Judge Learned Hand. Oh, Judge, okay. Judge Hand had a small army of legal luminaries, including then current and future Supreme Court justices lobbying for him to be appointed to the court. His allies included Chief Justices Holmes and Taft and Justice Frankfurter. And the other person on the list was Chief Justice Roger Trainer of California. Okay. Those make sense. Those make sense. Well, you're two for one, actually, with a bonus point. So you're doing great. Moving on to question number two. This man was briefly the chief justice by way of a recess appointment, but the Senate rejected his nomination. 
So I know this from past trivia. Everyone, this is why you should always listen to the trivia portion of our episodes. Uh, I believe the answer to this is John Rutledge. That is correct. In fact, he appeared in a past trivia episode because this was uh, Rutledge's second stint on the Supreme Court. He had previously been an associate justice, but stepped down to be chief justice of the South Carolina Court of Common Pleas. Well done, Amy. Moving on. This man, who delivered perhaps the most famous speech of the Revolutionary War period, was offered the spot of the third Chief Justice of the United States after John Jay stepped down and the Senate rejected John Rutledge's recess appointment. The most famous speech of the Revolutionary War period? Did I hear that correct? Yes. Okay, so the answer to this has to be Patrick Henry. It, it has to be give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry. You're absolutely right. Patrick Henry was offered the spot uh, by George Washington, but he rejected it. And in fact, uh, he let George Washington's letter sit unanswered for a very long period of time, which George Washington referred to as a great embarrassment. Well done, Amy. You're on fire today. <laughs> Moving right along. Justice Ginsburg was not President Clinton's first pick to replace Justice Byron White. It was only after this man rejected the seat, having also refused to be considered as a VP candidate to Clinton in 1992, that Clinton nominated Justice Ginsburg. Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, I, Giancarlo, this is killing me because I, I'm blanking on his name. Um, yeah, he, he ran for, uh, governor of New York, um, and, uh, Cuomo is one of that's, the Cuomos, right? That's absolutely right. It was, okay. uh, Mario Cuomo. Well, Amy, you made a clean sweep of trivia this week. Well done. It's about time. I, I, uh, I had to step up my game here, so. This one was for you, audience. This one was for you. Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And please, 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 if you love us, leave us that five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.